Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Um, my name is Josh McQuaid. I'm the Director of Formation and Mission here at Redeemer. It's great to have a chance to look at uh, 1 Corinthians with us, with you this morning. Um, so welcome to Redeemer. Thanks for being here. Uh, well, what is Redeemer? Uh, Redeemer, as we say every week, we're a church. That means we're a community of people who are learning to love God and are learning to love our neighbors. Uh, and like we like to remind ourselves every week, what that means is that we believe most fundamentally, most importantly, that Jesus is God. And that he entered into the world, uh, not only to be with us, to draw near to us, but to die for us, uh, to die for our sins, to pour out his spirit so that we could believe in him and so that we could know the love of the Father uh, that he has made known to us. And so what we do in response to that every week is we come and we worship, we sing and we confess our sins and we read the Bible and we pray together uh, so that we can rest in the love that Jesus has made known to us. And then we get together throughout the week, too. We go to football games uh, and maybe get rowdy uh, at football games. We read the Bible together. Uh, we pray together. We do all kinds of other things to remind one another uh, of the love that Jesus has made known to us. And then as we rest together in his love, we remind one another of his love, and we turn in service to our world and to our city uh, to reflect the love of Jesus to our, our friends and neighbors here. So that's who we are. We're a community of people learning to love God, learning to love our neighbors as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect the love of Jesus to the world. So to help us in that, uh, in this season, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've been thinking about what Paul uh, says to us about true spirituality. And as we've gone through, what we've seen is that maybe surprisingly, true spirituality, according to Paul, is not about uh, achieving levels of spirituality in the Christian life. And uh, true spirituality is not about these big experiences that we might have, though we might like those things, though we might appreciate those things. That's not what true spirituality is about. And true spirituality isn't about the disciplines of our life that make life work for us either. Instead, what Paul has said and that we've seen every week uh, is that true spirituality is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, to shaping us and forming us uh, after the curriculum of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to continue to see those themes this week as we look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, and we think about spiritual conflict. So let's read this this morning. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers." 
To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we do pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our ears, uh, that you would give us um, just a fresh uh, work of your spirit in our lives to hear your word anew, Uh, maybe for the first time uh, and maybe in a fresh way that we need to hear this morning, that you would make us more and more like Jesus, we pray in your name, amen. Uh, Well, I'm not proud of this, but it's kind of a normal week for me, so I spent a little bit too much time on the internet. Uh, Maybe some of you did too. Um, But what this means is that I saw when one of you posted something, uh, inviting all of us to respond with all of our favorite stories, songs that tell stories, right? Maybe some of you saw this. A lot of people responded to this. A lot of you in this room responded to this. It's fascinating to see uh, the songs that you guys are moved by, the different musical genres that in this community uh, people find moving. Uh, But one of the things that that this did for me was it sent me down a rabbit trail thinking of all the songs that are out there that I love that tell stories. Some of them are funny stories, some of them are sad stories, some of them are happy stories. Um, But one that that I held back uh, by forgetting about it until I was writing the sermon uh, that I didn't say online, I held it back for today, is uh, the song called Sam Stone by John Prine. So maybe you know it. Um, If you don't, uh, I'll read it to you at least some of it. Sam Stone came home to his wife and family after serving in the conflict overseas. And the time that he served had shattered all his nerves and left a little shrapnel in his knees. The story goes on. It tells us about how Sam came home and he struggled to cope with life, uh, civilian life. Uh, he, He struggled to live under the weight of the Purple Heart that he'd earned. And the song tells us that he had a monkey on his back because of everything that he'd endured. Um, it tells us that his mind would just race, that his, his nerves were frayed. Uh, and so Sam Stone resorts to medication. He resorts to addiction to cope with uh, his nerves and his mind. Uh, but the drugs that he takes, they cloud his mind and they leave him with a family uh, that has to wear other people's clothes. Uh, and eventually, uh, it's a sad song. If you haven't told, can't tell. Uh, it doesn't work out well for Sam. Sam doesn't make it. He passes away. Um, but there's this line in the chorus that I find so moving and so powerful. Um, and because it's in the chorus, it just gets repeated as a refrain over and over again in the song. And it says this. It says, well, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. And Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. You know, I don't know anything about John Prine. I don't know what he believed about Jesus or about the church or about the spirit. Um, But at least in this song, he's asking a really fundamental question. He's asking, did Jesus die for nothing? Does the death of Jesus, does the spirit, 
that Jesus claims to give to his people, does it actually do anything in the world? It doesn't seem like it did anything for Sam Stone. It doesn't seem like it did anything for all the people we know that are in situations like that. And so John Prine's asking this question. Did Jesus Christ die for nothing? And that's a really important question for us, I think, um, especially as we hold out Jesus to the world. We say Jesus is the hope of the world. But the world then answers back with all of the stories of Christians who haven't been formed enough, communities that look like the world, and say, but did Jesus Christ die for nothing? It's a really important question for us to wrestle with, and it's really the question that's in this text in 1 Corinthians 6. Because what Paul is doing here, he's facing the Corinthian church, and he's saying, you don't actually look much different than the world. Uh, He's looking at them, and he's saying, Jesus died, and he's poured out his spirit, but you still look like the world around you. And what he's trying to remind them of is that Jesus Christ didn't die for nothing. And Jesus Christ did pour out his spirit upon them. And so what he's doing, what we're going to see that he does this morning, is that he calls the Corinthians to live not in light of what their experience is, and not in light of what comes naturally to them, but he's calling them to live in light of who they are. He's calling them to live in light of who Jesus has made them. And so what he's saying is how we live must flow from who we are. How we live must flow from who Jesus has made us. So those are going to be our two points this morning, how we live uh, and how that flows from who Jesus has made us. So first of all, how we live. Um, It's really foundational to us in this text to recognize that Paul's argument is that the Christian community, the church, has to be a community that lives in really fundamentally different ways to the world around us. Um, That's not surprising for you to hear me say. That's sort of what Christians say all the time, right? It's not surprising to hear a Christian preacher stand up and say, you should be different. Um, But what I think maybe is different in this text is the particular kind of difference that Paul is calling uh, the Corinthians to and that he's calling us to. Because Paul's main point in this text isn't just that the Corinthians should be sort of arbitrarily different from the world around them. What he's saying is, in the church, where Jesus is at work and where Jesus has poured out his spirit, there is a power at work here that ought to knit us together and help us to overcome our conflicts and help us to live together in love with each other. And that power is really unique. You don't find it anywhere else in the world. That's the kind of difference that he's calling us to, a life that's transformed by the spirit, by Jesus among us, that's teaching us to live in love with one another. But of course, in this text, you saw it when we read it, um, Paul isn't just like laying that out neatly for us. He's actually confronting a community that's failing to live up to that standard. And he's telling them all of the ways that they look just like the world. Um, But when we look back at it, you'll see what he's saying is this is not how it's supposed to be. So look back at verse one where he says this. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go out to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And then in verse four, he says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. See, what Paul's doing here is he's addressing a Christian community that ought to be able to live together in love. 
but they're fighting with one another and they're fighting with one another so badly that they've actually taken their, their fight outside of the walls of the church and they've gone to the pagan secular institutions of the courts. Um, I think for us to hear the force of what Paul is saying, we need to remind ourselves of some of the other things that are happening in 1 Corinthians. Um, so if you've been here for the past few weeks, if you stay with us for the rest of this series, you're going to hear Paul again and again rebuke the Corinthians for being a very proud people, for being really boastful. Um, they like to boast in their wisdom. They like to boast in their power. They like to boast in their piety. They like to boast in all of these things that set them up as like exemplary people in the world and as exemplary Christians. And time and time again, what Paul is saying is you're not as, as great as you think you are. You've got room that you need to grow. So remember in chapters one and two, Paul rebukes them for their boasting in wisdom where they were setting themselves up against one another. Uh, and they were showing how I'm better than you because I have more wisdom than you do. Uh, or maybe they're setting themselves up against Paul and they're saying, we don't need Paul anymore. We've found other teachers and we have enough wisdom. We've gone beyond Paul. Later on in the book, Paul is gonna rebuke them for the way that they seek to use the gifts of the spirit to compete with one another and to make themselves look more important than one another. So my gifts are, are bigger than yours. They're more visible than yours. Therefore, I'm better than you is what they're saying to each other. And Paul's gonna call them to account on that. So here in this text, with all of that going on, I think it's easy for us to see that what Paul's doing is he's undercutting that whole argument, right? And what he's saying is, yeah, but if you can't sort out your problems together, then how wise are you really? If you can't live together and sort out these uh, conflicts, then how full of the spirit are you really? So his point seems to be something like this. Uh, if the church is really going to be set apart from the world, if the church is really going to live in such a way as to show the world that Jesus Christ didn't die for nothing, but that the Spirit is really at work, then whatever else that means, it has to mean that we're able to sort out our disagreements with one another. Um, sometimes when I come to texts like this, I sort of wish that Paul would have this moment where Paul would like turn to the camera and say, hey, you know, Jim put the stapler in the bowl of jello right? And like, tell us what's going on. Like, explain the backstory, like kind of this office moment. Um, he doesn't do that. Like, we have to kind of like piece things together a little bit. Um, but one of the things that I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of is Paul is speaking into a conflict that's happening among like real people who really knew each other and really lived together and were really taking each other to court, right? So when Paul says these things, when he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? You yourselves wrong and defraud. To us, these sound a little uh, abstract, right? We don't know the people. We don't know the situation. But to the Corinthians, Paul's like singling people out. And he's saying, hey, it would be better for you to just eat the wrong. Just own it. Just take it and move on. Um, and so this is a really, really sharp word to the Corinthian church. Like when he says it, people are like, they know who's being called out. They know who's being vindicated. They're kind of backing up a little bit, right? Like put a little space between me and that guy. Um, so this is a really heavy word that Paul gives them. But I think even if we don't know all the particulars of what's going on, there's a few things we can see from the text that are, make it pretty clear what's happening. The first thing that we can see is in verse two, he tells us that it's a trivial case. 
So it seems like this is not a huge, big conflict. It seems like this is fairly minor, relatively minor in the grand scheme of things. He calls it a trivial case. Uh, the second thing that we know about this is it probably involves money. We see this in verses 7 and 8 when he talks about somebody feeling defrauded or somebody was defrauded. Um, so it probably involved money. We also know, this is not in the text, but this is just from context. One of the things we know is that the Roman courts that Paul says the Corinthians are resorting to, the Roman courts were not places that you went for real justice to be served. Um, the Roman courts were places that you went if you had the social clout, if you had the economic power to get your way. You took somebody to court when you could back it up with uh, your relationship with the judge or your, uh, your check that you could write to the judge. Um, you took people to court because you could exploit them. It's pretty much how it worked. And the last thing we know is that uh, we know in Corinth from later on in the book that there were active conflicts between uh, different socioeconomic classes in the church. The rich and the poor were not living together well. And so it seems like what's happening in this text is that a relatively minor dispute over money has come up between members of the community, and rather than sorting it out themselves, they've resorted to taking one another to court. And because of what we know about the courts, it's probably that the people that are doing this to each other are at least social equals. They at least feel like they can kind of win against each other in court. Or uh, maybe a little more darkly, we don't know for sure, but it's not hard to imagine. It might be that a rich member of the community has taken to court somebody who doesn't have the means to stand up for themselves in court. Uh, and so they're leveraging their clout and their standing to get what they feel is due to them. So with all that in mind, uh, listen again to what Paul says in verses 5 through 8. Can it really be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? The brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. You have lost, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So I hope you can hear with the context what Paul's saying. He's saying two things. He's saying to the Christian community, how is it possible that the notoriously corrupt Roman courts are better able to judge your conflicts. You're Christians, you have the spirit, you have Jesus. How is it possible that these people who don't have Jesus and don't have the spirit and are objectively corrupt are better able to adjudicate your conflicts than you are? He's saying you claim to be filled with the spirit, you claim to be, to be wise, uh, show me the spirit, show me your wisdom by sorting this out with one another. And he's also turning to the individuals and he's saying, what are you doing? <laughs> Isn't it better for you to be wronged? Isn't it better for you to be defrauded even than to take your little squabble out into the world and to show the world that maybe Jesus hasn't actually formed you into a wise and capable people? I don't know. That's a pretty sharp word. <laughs> it feels pretty sharp to me. Um, I've been in the church, maybe you have too, you know how hard our conflicts can be with one another. Um, even when we love each other, even when we uh, share mostly the same worldview, it's really easy for us to get sideways with each other and for real uh, harm to be done and for real people to hurt each other. Um, 
but you know, even for us, even though we do fight with one another, we have disagreements. I, I do think it's pretty rare for us to resort to taking people to court. Uh, I don't think that's happened to Redeemer recently. Um, so I, I think it's maybe worth us like pausing for a second and just saying, what are kind of the, the modern equivalents? What are the equivalents in our experience? What are the ways that we resort to the systems uh, of the world to sort out our conflicts with each other? And as we think about that, I want to ask you a follow-up question too. Have they ever worked for us? <laughs> what are the ways that we use the world's systems to sort out our conflicts? And have they made us a more loving people, a people more equipped to live with one another. So when Christian brothers and sisters disagree with one another, uh, I think it's really common for us to avoid each other, right? To withdraw and to run away from each other. Um, maybe we, we start to run in different circles so that we don't bump into that person that has made us uncomfortable or has upset us. Uh, maybe if our Christian community is too small that we can't get away, maybe we move to another church so that we can, you know, just be a little further away from that person. Um, or maybe the, the disagreement is so sharp, it's so hard that we just leave the church altogether, right? But we avoid. It's a common tactic that we use. Um, Maybe in addition to avoiding, maybe we also fight. Sometimes we fight with each other. Uh, we'll accuse each other. We'll try to prove how right I am and I'll show how wrong you are. We'll pile up arguments and try to, to weigh it out and see who's right and who's wrong. And maybe we do this in person, but I think really commonly we do this, uh, we take it to the internet, right? And so we'll fight in comments sections. Uh, maybe not directly. Maybe, you know, we're pretty good at like just signaling. Uh, I'm going to share this story, right? Or I'm going to uh, I'm going to kind of tear this argument down and I'm going to do it in a way that'll turn the screws on the person uh, that I don't like. I think it's really fascinating. It's another topic for another day, but I think it's really interesting how the internet has actually shaped us and given us new tools to both avoid one another and fight with one another. Um, sometimes in exactly the same instance, um, but we're being shaped to interact with each other in ways that are not shaped by the spirit, but are shaped by the world. Maybe we gather our friends together. We talk about all the ways we've been wronged. We nurse a grudge against the person that's upset us. But these are the tactics that we draw in from the world, right? We discredit one another. We hide. We run away. We surround ourselves with people uh, who will just help us feel better. So we do all of these things instead of doing things like drawing near to the person that we're afraid of or the person that has hurt us. Uh, instead of sending the text, getting coffee, getting a meal, uh, instead of reaching out to them and asking how, how we can work this out, <laughs> instead of doing the hard work of learning together how it is that we can live in peace with each other and we can overcome our differences and even put to death the suspicion that we have for one another, See, something that Paul's saying here that I think is really important for us to hear is that the church of Jesus ought to be the one place in the world where that kind of activity is the norm, not the exception. Where we draw near to one another, where we seek repentance, we seek forgiveness, and we seek to live together in love. But as if that's not hard enough for us to do, it's pretty hard, um, I think some of, some of Paul's other words here are even harder. Uh, I'm thinking about his words in verse 7, where he calls the Corinthians to let themselves be wronged and even to prefer being defrauded. Um, 
these words, I think, are really, really hard for us, especially as Americans who uh, have been maybe formed or catechized, you might say, to love equity and to love fairness, particularly when equity and fairness uh, are not going our way, (laughs) but when we have been wronged. Uh, But also other people too, right? Like we don't like any instance of unfairness or injustice. So what could be worse than letting yourself be wronged? Um, And I do think it's really important to, to say something very carefully here because I don't want you to come and to hear this and to read this text and to hear me say that God doesn't care about injustice, that God says to the person who's suffered injustice or who has suffered abuse, God doesn't care about you and he doesn't care about your injustice. Um, The Bible makes very, very clear that God cares deeply about injustice. The Bible makes very clear that God came into the world to right the injustices of the world. You look at the end of the story, God's wiped away every tear from every eye. He's taken away sin. There's no more death or sorrow or pain. Like the whole story of the Bible is God addressing the wrong of the world. But what Paul is saying here is that all of the systems of our world, all of the courts, all of the institutions, anything that the world has, it is unable to provide for us the justice that God promises and the justice that God gives us in himself. What Paul's setting in front of us here is a picture of the church in Corinth, a picture of the Christian community, even ourselves, as a community of people who have been drawn together in the name of Jesus, formed by the power of the Spirit, and a place where all of the the wrongness in the world, all of the fights and the conflicts and the inability to live together should fall away because of the power of the Spirit at work within us. He's setting in front of us a completely different social vision of what God is doing in the world. And he's saying, this is who you are as Christians. And so Paul's words about being wronged and his words about being defrauded, we don't like them. They make us uncomfortable. But these words are the words that tell us how it is that we can create the kind of community that we all long for. Because what Paul is saying is, All of the systems of the world, they're all set up to enact uh, revenge, vengeance. They're all about getting back what is mine. They're all about taking the pound of flesh. But what he's saying is you're never going to get there. You're never going to have the community that you long for, that the Spirit promises that way. He says the only way you're going to be the kind of people that God has called you to be is by learning to die to yourself and by learning uh, to set down what you want for the sake of another. So I have to learn to love my brother. (laughs) I have to learn to love this community more than I love myself and more than I love being right and being powerful and being in charge. I have to learn uh, to lay down everything that I want in life for your sake and you lay it down for me and for one another so that God can be at work to produce this community. This is what Paul's calling us to do. He's calling us to die to ourselves out of love for one another. But that's really hard. (laughs) Um, In fact, it's not just hard, it's actually impossible. Um, 
I think it's important for us to recognize that what Paul is setting in front of the Corinthians, what he's setting in front of us, is not just something that if we try really hard, maybe we could do it. Maybe we could get it right. We've seen it all through history in all the systems of the world. It doesn't work. We, we are powerless to make this for ourselves. What Paul is setting in front of us is a vision that only God in his mercy can do among us. We will not have that kind of community until God in his kindness and his mercy works it in us by his spirit. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, this is how you're to live, and this is who you are. Remember who you are. Remember what God has done among you and who he has made you so that you can live into this vision. So let's spend our last few minutes thinking about who we are. Um, I think we normally think about our identity flowing from what we do, right? I'm defined by what I do. I'm a preacher because I stand up here and I preach. Uh, at an earlier, younger season of my life, I was a soccer player. Uh, now I'm a little older and I'm a lot slower, as Ben knows. Uh, and so I'm more of a soccer watcher now. Right? My identity has changed with respect to soccer because I don't do certain things. I have a different identity. Um, or maybe you could think about it in your career. Uh, maybe you went to school to do something. Maybe you went to school to be a lawyer. Uh, but now you're not, you're not in law. You're not practicing law. So are you a lawyer? Uh, kind of right? But not really, because your identity flows from what you do. This is how we think about it. Uh, or maybe you're a Christian because you go to church. You're a Christian because you read the Bible. See, this is how we think about our identity. But I, what, what I want you to notice is that Paul is saying something pretty fundamentally different here in these last few verses. He's actually saying that that vision of understanding ourselves by virtue of what we do, that's backwards to the way God sees it. He's saying that how we live, what we do actually flows from who we are. It actually flows from what God has done in us, the identity that God has given us. And it's that identity that God has given us that sets us free to live in new ways. So look back at verses 9 and 11. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. See, if we think that who we are comes from what we do, then we look at this list that's here and it crushes us. <laughs> it takes away all of our hope if our identity comes from this list. Because if we're honest, who among us is not greedy? I mean, I am. <laughs> we all struggle. We want things that are not ours to have, that God has not given us. Who among us is never abusive with your words? That's what reviling is. Who among us is never tempted to be unfaithful with our bodies, to live in ways that God has not called us to live? Who among us never worships or loves something more than God? See, if this list tells us who we are, then we are crushed. But notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, because you don't do these things anymore, so now you belong to God. He says exactly the opposite. He says, such were some of you. This is how you lived. But what has changed? God has washed you. <laughs> you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And 
you know, for a Christian audience like Paul's uh, writing to and for us here today, that language of washing is what we just saw today. It's reminding us of our baptism. And so what did we do at our baptism? What did we do to receive the water? Nothing. God pours his water onto us. God washes us. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy and sets us apart as his own. He justifies us and makes us right with himself. And since he's done all of that, we now hold on to Jesus and by his spirit, he works a new identity into us because of his faithfulness and because of his mercy, because of his grace. And so for those of us that are here that are Christians, we look at that and we're reminded and we're thankful that we have a new identity. But it's also an invitation when you look at this list and you're crushed by it to recognize if you've never been washed by, by the Spirit, this is your only hope. You too need the waters of baptism that the Spirit would pour on you and make you new. And so it's an invitation for all to come. And it's this new identity that the Spirit of God gives us that sets us free to live according to the vision that Paul has set out for us here. Um, One theologian that I read this week said it this way. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I I think it's really helpful. He said, "The uh, the believer is to leave behind the behaviors characteristic of that old mode, just as the butterfly leaves behind the cocoon and the habits of the caterpillar life. Now washed, sanctified, justified, baptized Christians are set into a new reality, not by some act of will or commitment, but by the gracious action of a loving God. The art of living faithfully as Christians is to live imaginatively and practically on the basis of these truths about ourselves. That's beautiful. The the way that we live as Christians is to live imaginatively and practically, imagining a different world that God would call us into, a different way of living with one another. Um, This reminds me, too, of uh, a cartoon that a preacher I was listening to recently referenced. Uh, It's a famous cartoon from The New Yorker where a, a butterfly is looking at a caterpillar, and he says, the thing is, you have to just really want to change, right? which is absurd. Uh, Of course, the question of what the caterpillar desires, what they want, has no bearing at all on whether or not the caterpillar will change. And so for us, the question is not how hard will you work? How much will you desire this? The question is, has the Spirit washed you? Has the Spirit transformed you and made you holy and made you right in the name of Jesus? Has he brought his new life into you? And if he has, then this is who you are. And to live any other way is to live apart from the life that he's working into you. Um, I do think that part of how the Spirit does this in our lives, too, is to give us these little moments, like we have today, where he can stir our imagination to kind of set a new vision in front of us for how we might live as a community. Um, So let me end by just asking some questions and inviting you to imagine a community that might be the kind of community that Paul would uh, invite us into. What do you think our community at Redeemer uh, would look like if we were to actually live this way? Um, What would it be like for us to stop running from having hard conversations with each other? What if instead we turned and ran towards one another? When, when we were getting afraid of each other, when we were afraid that you might disagree with me, um, you might think that I'm foolish or silly, 
What if instead of turning and running from you, I drew near to you? And I came and I uh, expressed curiosity about you. And I asked you, how do you see the world? How do you think about these things? Help me see what I'm missing. Um, what if as we grew in fear with one another or nervousness towards one another, we went towards each other instead of running away from each other? What if when somebody comes and confronts me about the way that I've hurt them, instead of doing what comes naturally to me and defending myself and giving them all the list of reasons why I was really right and they were really wrong, um, what if I learned to say, I'm so sorry that I hurt you. Please forgive me. What if when we have conflict with one another, instead of gathering the troops and rallying people around us who will make us feel good about ourselves, what if we sat with one another and we wept together for the ways that we've hurt each other and we pledged again our love to Jesus through each other by laying down our lives to live together? See, this is the life that the Spirit's inviting us into as his people. Uh, and it's a life that, as we walk with the Spirit, he works in us. As, as inevitably as the caterpillar turns into the butterfly, this is what the Spirit does in Christian communities. And the way he does it is by us living imaginatively into that, praying that the Spirit would be at work in our lives, repenting when we fail, and crying out for him to do it among us more and more. So that's our prayer today, that even today and this week, the Spirit would be at work, making us more and more this kind of community. Let's pray. Father, would you make us a people um, who joyfully lay down our lives for one another? Uh, we pray that though these things are hard, and though we fail often, that you would stir us up by your spirit, that you would give us the resources that we don't have in ourselves, uh, but that we only have because of your mercy and your kindness to us. Would you shape us more and more to be like Jesus, that when the world looks at us, uh, and sees the way that we live together, the world would know that Jesus Christ did not die for nothing. We pray in your name. Amen. <laughs>